for me, whether I'm entering into a period of intensive personal practice or a time of teaching, there's always this feeling in my heart of entering into sacred time and space. The sacredness of life surrounding us, the incredible diversity and natural rhythms of life happening all around us here. The weather and all of its changes. The changes in the light, light to dark, and again to light and again to dark. The winter season with all of the ongoing changes occurring in this realm. And all of the forms of life, the community of beings that we share this place with. Many birds and other creatures. The trees and all of the other manifestations of plant life. And the air itself. All constantly changing. Beginning and ending. Birthing and dying the natural world so close around us, so easily available to connect with. And it's a great gift that we're not separate from, a great gift that holds us in itself. The natural world is a great teacher of the sacred. And the perfectly natural fluidity of diversity and change that just simply is. It's a mirror of the truth of ourself, our nature as nature. And considering that in fact nature is no problem to itself, no problem to itself in itself, we can learn from this mirror of naturalness, the just isness, the just beingness, the absolute, absolutely open-hearted presence, we could say, of this perfectly natural world. It's really no surprise that humans are drawn to places like this. Places where untarnished naturalness and beauty are easily accessible. Most of us experience a very natural, open-hearted connection in moments of simple, clear presence when we take the time to really, truly arrive and be. Just simply be. For instance, with the late afternoon light or an early morning sunrise or the changing colors, changing sky colors at the close of the day or just simply sitting beside the frozen or the flowing river or open-heartedly truly seeing the particulars 
of how winter displays itself in small and larger ways. And of course, along with any of this, moments of silence, simple, clear presence in our body, our mind, and our heart, any time of the day or night. One day in the 92nd year of her life, my mother stooped over just for a moment or two during our daily out-of-doors walk and looking silently and for quite some moments at a flower that was very full in its blooming liveliness. And after a couple of moments of looking, focusing deeply into the flower, she just simply said, it's great to be alive. Probably each of us has come to some unexpected, unsuspected, and maybe even exceptional moments during times of very simple presence. These moments of clear, unfettered attention, which we could call moments of spiritual attention. Our heart, our mind opens and relaxes, eases in the midst of a simple, direct presence with things. And the natural world is often the place that this happens for us most easily, at least at first. Sometimes in these moments of spiritual attention, it's as though we fall through ordinary appearances. We fall through ourselves, fall through our usual habitual selves into an intuitive place of the essence of things. Our heart, our mind, opens with an unfettered receptivity, a kind of radical acceptance, in which there's a deep sense of connection and possibility, and a sense of selflessness, or a healthy, wholesome emptiness inwardly and outwardly. And then we might touch the boundlessness, the wonder, the very transient, constantly changing radiance of life. For maybe just a moment, we might dissolve into the bound, with a boundless heart, a boundless mind, out of our seeming, seemingly separate, solid, static sense of self. and into the surprise of the moment, the unexpected surprise surprise of the reflection of truth and the wonder of it all, the just isness of it all, the surprise of a momentary experience of a not separate self. For just a moment, we may wake up to this sense, this unexpected surprise, the reflection of the heart, the mind's 
true connection in this simple unconditional moment. This is where the essential energy of creativity resides and where it blossoms from. This is the root, the basis for our exploration over these next two weeks. And also in a place like this, there is a degree of accumulated energy. All of the people who have come here to learn and to practice, all of those who have come here to reflect and do inner work, to explore, to investigate, to investigate the nature of things, all the teachings that have been offered here and the teachers who have offered them. It's really a wonderful and symbiotic and expanding energy that we're both partaking of and adding to. And so, here we are. During these retreat days, we have the great gift of being taken care of in a beautiful and simple way. All of our basic needs being met. While you're here, life is pared down, simplified from your usual daily activities, demands, and seeming needs. There's not much to do over these next days. Sitting, walking, eating, sleeping, listening, engaging in moving, drawing, writing. And most importantly, cultivating and paying attention to your own particular experiences of body, mind, and heart. So compared to the ways of the world, there's really not much to do over these next two weeks, which is actually a good thing to remember. Because some of you may have such a strong habit of keeping busy that you may go on creating all sorts of things to do, just simply out of habit. So in this light, one of the things that we're practicing while we're here is what could be called renunciation. Letting go of busyness. Letting go of the usual distractions uh, that you use, that you engage in to try to relax out of all the busyness. And what a gift this is, this renunciation. It's not at all so usual in our culture to take the time to engage our energy this way, to really simplify our life and spend time looking inward, to come to a place like this to be, to just simply be, to not become anything or anybody, to not fill the mind with more stuff, but just simply be connecting and looking inward, looking directly at your experience just as it is in the moment. 
And so we begin together in a kind of sanctuary. Being here together in this place of safety and protection. This place that holds and engenders deep respect and acceptance. It's really an incredibly valuable gift that you've given to yourself for these next two weeks and that you give to each other simply by being here with each other. For just about everyone, there are many different feelings that come up at the onset of a retreat. Excitement, nervousness, anxiety, worry, delight, relief. Lots of energy moving through our body, mind, and heart. Even for people that have sat many retreats. A friend of mine who was about to begin sitting his fourth or fifth three-month retreat some years ago told me just before, the evening before the retreat began, I asked him how he was feeling. And he said, oh, I'm feeling the obligatory fear. (laughs) For me, in teaching or beginning a personal retreat, many of these same flavors of energy move through my body, mind, and heart. It's human nature entering into something new. A little added energy moving through our body and heart that has many different tones to it. And how very fortunate it is that we're embodied as we are. Embodied in a human form. This precious human existence. Making it possible to practice making it possible to be able to look within and cultivate a pure, kind, and balanced heart and mind and the possibility of liberation that clear insight into the nature of things brings. We're actually a minority on this planet. We're a minority in this universe. And of course, who knows beyond? Think about it for a moment. Insects are much more prevalent than humans on this planet. A friend of mine here in Taos who owns a plant nursery told me that there are, this is a quote from her, 200 million bugs per humans, per human, one human on this planet. So how fortunate to be embodied in the way that we are. This human heart, mind, and body are really the most conducive towards developing kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, and the great gift of understanding, wisdom. Because of the particular mixture that each one of us has of both pleasure and pain. There's just enough of each. Sometimes a little more of one, sometimes a little more of the other. At times maybe some 
great big handfuls of one and seemingly not much or any of the other. But the truth is, it changes back and forth within a week, daily, even within moments. So really this human realm offers the best conditions that we could ask for. There are beings that primarily live in what could be called the lower realms where the intensity of suffering is so great that it's impossible or nigh unto impossible to develop the wholesome qualities of mind and heart that are needed for practice. I'm sure that each of you have been in those lower realms at times and know that place of tremendous fire and contraction, that place where it feels impossible to be present with our experience, where it seems impossible to connect with goodness, acceptance, kind-heartedness, joy, compassion, or any degree of equanimity, let alone wisdom. In the higher realms, or what we could call the higher planes of existence, everything is so blissful, there's little inspiration to practice. And I'm sure you've all tasted this as well, at least for moments, where it all seems just perfect for a moment or two, or maybe a little longer. Life is utterly blissful, and there's no inspiration to do anything else. If we have a practice, it might fly out the window during these moments. We forget that life isn't always so blissful, that we don't always get what we want, that life doesn't always go our way. In the blissful moments, it's easy to forget that we still have our spiritual work to do. So this realm that we live in most of the time, this is the place. This is the place we can open to our perfectly natural capacity to open-heartedly connect within ourselves and in relationship to others. Letting the inherent intuitive understanding of the true nature of things simply unfold. It said if all the world were water and a wooden ring one foot in diameter was thrown upon the water and blown about by the winds a blind turtle surfacing once every hundred years would put its neck through this wooden ring more easily than one can obtain a precious human existence. We're a rare species within the breadth of all the forms of life on this planet. There's an ancient teaching that says Those who have a precious human existence with all of the conditions, opportunities, and blessings in place 
to meet the Dhamma and to practice the Dhamma, to practice the way of truth, to practice the way of the heart, that these beings are as rare as daytime stars. So, here we are, a room full of daytime stars. For the next little while now, I'd like to just begin exploring mindfulness with you. Tomorrow evening we'll go more into depth with this very essential aspect of our practice. So just considering for a moment, have you ever had the experience of getting to know someone and finding that they're not at all like your initial preconditioned perceptions and judgments were. We've probably all had that experience at one point or another during our life. Without mindfulness, we're often caught and unaware in our initial perceptions and reactions to things because we're so blindly run by our conditioned habitual ways. Without mindfulness, we could say that our relationship to most all of our experience is like this. Everything we see, everything we hear, smell, taste, touch, everything we think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thought patterns, our habitual ways of experiencing. And we're not aware of it. What this means is that we're living at a distance from experience. We're living at a distance from life itself. And this can be like a vicious circle that feeds itself, feeding the conditioning. We become more and more on automatic, more robotic, kind of like our computers. You know, you push the key, and out pops what's already in there. In our case, habitual conditioned reactions. So mindfulness. Mindfulness and investigation are both very important in this process of exploring the true nature of things, which includes the true nature of ourselves. And in cultivating our capacity to connect and manifest fluid, open-hearted, creative expression. We have many long-standing and deep habits that we're not aware of, that keep us shut off, that keep us closed down. We could say that mindfulness is essentially about bringing everything into a very clear sharp focus to see really see things as they are maybe seeing and knowing as though for the very first time and that's helpful mindful presence is a powerful way of changing our mind changing our heart 
changing the way that we relate to ourselves, people, things, and situations in the world. Connecting with an open-hearted and clear awareness allows for the release and the transformation of our painful, unskillful habits. It's very powerful. And so I offer you a definition of mindfulness that I think will be helpful as we explore the notion of self and the reality of no-self in relationship to the various creative modalities that you'll be engaging in over these next two weeks. Mindful awareness is about paying a kind of extraordinary attention, a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting attention to present moment experience both your inner experience and in relationship to outer phenomena. It's not our usual training to be so present in the moment with what's happening in our heart, our body, and our mind, and in relationship to what's occurring right in front of us and around us. So we train the heart, we train the mind to just simply see and know what is. What is this? How is it right now, right here? Sometimes this might feel like a kind of magical relationship to things. And by magic, I I don't mean the magician's magic that creates an illusion and then pulls us into that illusion. The seeming magic of mindfulness, of mindful awareness, is the magic of a connected, interested, open-hearted, mindful presence that takes us out of the illusion out of delusion and brings us directly into reality. And so we have two wonderful weeks ahead of us. A time of cultivation and discovery. A time of exploration, purification, understanding, and creativity which some of the time may not be so easy and may even be quite challenging at times. But all the while, your practice here includes the potential of bringing forth amazement, joy, beauty, and illumination. As we enter into this period of sustained practice, there are a few specific supports that are readily available for you. So now I'd like to just briefly look at these 
with you during this last part of our first evening together. And your first support is the wonderful gift of silence. This silence that gently holds us in itself. Silence is amazing in certain ways. It doesn't expect anything. It doesn't judge. Silence is infinitely patient, boundlessly spacious, open, allowing, and accepting. This container of silence that has no boundaries and that everything comes out of and returns to. And of course, within silence, there are sounds. All kinds of sounds that arise and pass. At times, of course, you'll hear the sound of my voice, or Jane's voice, or Sean's voice, and other voices as well. You might hear sighs or cries, maybe laughs, the sounds of squeaky old floors, the roar of engines, the sounds of dogs and birds, maybe the sound of water if the river's flowing and you're nearby. There'll be wind sound and other weather sounds, the myriad sounds of the natural world, all kinds of sounds arising and passing in the midst of silence. And sometimes we interpret sound as noise. It's important to note that this is an interpretation and to notice it, watch it. Is this or that sound noise? What happens if it's noise? Are you relaxed? Is your heart open to simply hearing, receiving the sound? Or is there a contraction, some form of aversion, a feeling of resistance or being disturbed, a sense of separation? If it's just a sound, our relationship to it is one of acceptance, this radical acceptance that I mentioned. Just simply and directly connecting with, hearing and knowing, knowing the tone or the quality of the sound, which you may perceive as pleasant or maybe unpleasant, along with the arising and passing nature of the sound itself, and its perceived pleasant or unpleasant quality. And of course, we're not always in this relationship to sound. So, with an open heart, just mindfully notice. Notice your relationship and response or reaction to sound without judgment in the midst of silence. Sometimes with silence it feels as though all of the windows of the world, all of the windows of the universe, of life itself, have been thrown wide open. 
And when this is our experience, we may have a sense of freshness. As though an open-hearted receptivity and clarity, fresh clarity, have been let in. An amazing thing about silence is that when we really truly begin to hear it, to really drop into it, we find that it's not dead. It's not flat. It's alive. It charges the air, we could say. And I've been told that the Thais, people from Thailand, have a number of words that delineate the particular qualities of silence. And as you may know, Eskimos who live with lots of snow don't have one word for snow. They have many words that delineate all the different snows that they experience. As do the Chinese in southern China have many words for banana because there's so many different kinds there. So awareness of the qualities of silence, its aliveness, It's a really precious aspect of retreat life. At the onset of a retreat, people occasionally feel some anxiety about being silent. Not only for a few moments, but for whole days, whole weeks in this case, and in the company of others. And it might seem to some of you that it, maybe it'll be awkward or kind of strange or maybe too difficult or maybe even impossible. And I can honestly say, as many of you well know for yourself, that most people by the end of the retreat and sometimes along the way of the retreat, people feel that silence is one of the most precious aspects of retreat time because it holds everything but doesn't hold on to anything everything just simply comes and goes in the spacious patient acceptance of silence the key here is that you don't have to be anybody you really don't have to be anybody special You don't have to present yourself. You don't have to be somebody or become somebody. You just simply be, as I've already said a few times. And it's a great relief, actually, to just simply be. Silence is where we learn to listen. Where we learn to see and understand. In this container of silence lies the possibility for the boundless capacity of our heart to be known, to be experienced. And within this we begin to see and know our deepest, truest self or no self. Where the notion of me, mine, and I in a sense evaporates into the truth of all things. And we understand that we are that. 
and that this is where the essential energy of creativity quite naturally flows from. So I wanted to offer you just a a few very practical pointers in relationship to inner and outer silence, which some of you are well aware of, but some of you aren't, so I'm offering these. As we go through the retreat, not purposely making eye contact with other people unless it's appropriate in specific conditions, which it will be at certain times during this retreat. So in this not making eye contact unless it's appropriate, it's an act of respect, respecting and honoring your own and others' inner work. Eye contact can be a very powerful form of communication, pulling both you and another person out of the inner, inner work. Another uh, practicality is keeping any daily writing, if you keep a journal and you've brought it with you, keeping any daily writing to a bare minimum. Just a few practice notes are okay, but during this retreat, not really beyond that. During the writing practice of section of this retreat, Sean will guide you with writing. And also, while you're here, not reading books and magazines. Another aspect, really, of keeping and protecting this container of silence. Not filling the mind with more stuff. There's already plenty in there. So this is the first uh, support, silence. And I always take time to explore it at the onset of a retreat because there's so much more to it than just not talking. The second support available here is taking refuge. Whenever I spend time in retreat myself, be it just for a few days or for an extended period of time, Although I deeply know in my bones the great benefits of intensive practice periods, I'm reminded again and again what an amazing and great gift we've been given from the Buddha. And what an incredible and great gift we give to ourselves when we take the time and put out the energy to directly engage in this journey of awakening. So our second support is taking refuge. And people take refuge in all kinds of things. In all of the various things, the stuff, the material, material world on the physical plane. And people take refuge in all kinds of ideas and beliefs and conjectures on the mental plane. This is kind of virtual refuge. Which, which kind of brings us virtual happiness. So taking refuge in the context of supporting our practice, what does it mean in this context? 
one of the ways we might recognize and experience refuge is in a place of shelter, a place of protection, a safety, a place of safety, a sacred space and place, as I've already mentioned, taking refuge in that. I once found a dictionary definition of refuge. It said, refuge is a port of shelter to vessels in stormy weather, which is actually very appropriate for certain periods of time when we're on retreat. Refuge is often experienced as a place of strength and clarity, both inwardly and also outwardly. The strength and clarity of those around us, our teachers, our spiritual friends who are on the path with us. And in the context of the Dhamma, we take refuge in what are very often spoke about as the three jewels or the three treasures, the first being the Buddha, which for many people means the historical Buddha, Gautama Buddha. So taking refuge in our Buddha. And this can bring inspiration and energy into our practice. We might reflect on the purity of the Buddha's heart and mind. The heart that's free from anguish and confusion. A heart that's free from all suffering. We might reflect on the great and amazing accomplishments of the Buddha which can inspire us towards a more sustained and greater effort in our own practice. And lastly, an important aspect of taking refuge in the Buddha is that we're taking refuge in our own true nature, our own innate awakened nature, taking refuge in the truth of ourselves, sometimes called our original faith. And the fact that essentially we're not separate from this. It's not somewhere else. It's not other than us. But right here, always, available to be known. So from this perspective, taking refuge in the Buddha is a symbol of faith. Faith in our deepest and most expansive potential. The second jewel or treasure that we take refuge in is the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of the truth, the way of things, the Dhamma, the universal laws, We could say that taking refuge in the Dhamma is taking refuge in what's actually true from moment to moment to moment. Taking refuge in how it really truly is. With this refuge, we're aligning ourselves with the practice of awareness, mindful awareness. Aligning ourselves with this practice of insight, understanding. Our practice of concentration, and wisdom. This practice that directs us to look directly and deeply at how it is. 
So taking refuge in the cultivation of a concentrated, direct, and powerful, mindful awareness in order to see the truth. And dropping our expectations and habitual patterns of seeing. And also the habit of relying on others to tell us how it is. Taking refuge in the Dhamma ourself. The third jewel or treasure that we take refuge in is in the Sangha. The word Sangha translates into English as community. And traditionally, the Sangha is the monastic community, the community of monks and nuns, those who have totally devoted their lives towards liberation. Since the time of the Buddha and up until quite recent times, it's primarily been the monastic Sangha who have held and offered the teachings and the practices. And really, truly, if it wasn't for this monastic Sangha over the centuries, we wouldn't be sitting here together this way this evening. In more recent times, the Sangha has come to me not only the monastic Sangha, but also the Sangha, the community of lay teachers and also of lay practitioners. There are moments when I take refuge in the Sangha when there's a sense of the incredible, vast expanse of human beings in this world, past and present, that I'm connected to through this process of awakening a sense of connection and unity that brings me inspiration and faith again and again in the process and faith in myself as I engage in the process. An important aspect of taking refuge in the Sangha is that we're taking refuge in each other right here, right now. The support, the encouragement, the inspiration that we receive from and give to each other. So very necessary in this powerful and sometimes difficult journey. As you all well know, our culture doesn't encourage or support us to engage in this journey. There are cultures that do. But our Western culture isn't one of them. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to practice totally alone in this world. We need Sangha. We need the support and the inspiration and the strength of community to engage in and to continue on this journey. So, taking refuge, the second support as you practice together over these next two weeks, taking refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Our third support that's available 
is the practice of sila which is a Pali word sila means living ethically in relationship to all forms of life living with a deep moral sensitivity towards and with all forms of life including ourself and the Buddha offered these particular teachings and practices in the form of precepts or guidelines guidelines meaning that they're not rigid rules that are kind of laid on us from the outside but rather the basis the ground of our practice the underlying principle of the precepts is non-harming the intention and the practice of sila is to connect to all forms of life with deep respect and a caring heart honoring life in all of its forms and then acting from this place I'd like to read a short description of this or teaching of this from the Buddha it's called harmlessness from the Dhammapada all beings tremble before violence all fear death all love life see yourself in others then whom can you hurt what harm can you do one who seeks happiness by hurting those who seek happiness will never find happiness for your sister and brother is like you she or he wants to be happy never harm her or him and when you leave this life you too will find happiness as our practice deepens and matures we come to understand what brings happiness what brings contentment and ease on the deepest level and what brings suffering confusion what brings dis-ease any one of these guidelines might light up as a point of practice a point of practice for us in any moment during this retreat sitting, walking, eating during the movement or the seeing drawing or the writing practice bringing our attention right into the present moment's experience offering an opportunity for the clarity of mindfulness investigation and wisdom to arise I'd like to share a particular rendition, as I sometimes call it, of these guidelines, these precepts. These were written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza, who uh, for many years lived at Green Gulch, a Zen farm. I don't know if she's still there. And she wrote this some years ago. I like this particular rendition uh, because it tells us why these precepts are so important knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow not to kill 
knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or other through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. In this retreat, we'll practice with the five precepts for lay practitioners, with the refuges and the precepts being offered at the beginning of each Adama talk evening. So the three supports that are here for us over these next two weeks, silence, refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and the precepts or guidelines. And I'd like to close this evening's talk with a poem by David White. He calls this Tilico Lake. In this high place, It's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love. And open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.